We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The Outline. World Dispatch. Wednesday, July 12, 2017. I'm Jeffy Haza. Today on The Dispatch, William Turton and I try to make sense of the Donald Trump Jr. situation. You know, it would almost be beyond belief that you would write to someone like, hey, I'm bringing you some information, and by the way, it's part of a Russian effort to help your dad become president. And Adrian Jeffries looks at Pandora's meltdown. It had money problems from the very beginning, and uh, it's just kind of all coming to a head now. Here's the dispatch. Power. So today on Dispatch, we're going to try something a little different. There's been a lot of news breaking about Donald Trump Jr. and meetings with Russian lawyers and publicists and pop stars and music videos. So uh, we thought it might be a good idea to put it all together in a nice timeline and really hash it out from start to whatever the finish looks like today. And I'm here with William Turton, and that's what we're going to do. Hey, what's up? So William and I are going to try to chart this story from the start and figure out what exactly is going on and how we got here. So this story dates back all the way to November 20th, 2013. During that summer, the Miss Universe pageant was being held in Moscow, and Donald Trump appeared in a music video for a Russian pop star. That pop star's name is Amin Algrilov. Amin, let's get with it. You're always late. You're just another pretty face. I'm really tired of you. You're fired. Now, that pop star's dad is a Russian billionaire that has had business dealings with Trump. And the publicist for that pop star, a guy named Rob Goldstone, is the person who facilitated this meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and a Russian lawyer. So Donald Trump appears in a music video in 2013. And three years later, Donald Trump is running for president, and the publicist for that pop star has incriminating information on his opponent? Right. So we'll get to that. (laughs) On May 26, 2016, Trump has secured the Republican nomination. And then later, on June 9th, not too far after he officially secures the nomination, this meeting takes place. Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, the then campaign manager that was later shortly ousted because of some sketchy ledger in Ukraine, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, um, met with this allegedly Kremlin-linked lawyer. Now, this lawyer has represented Russian businesses before, Russian government-owned businesses, and according to the New York Times, she's kind of been on the FBI's radar at some point. It's not exactly clear where her ties to the Russian government go exactly, but she is well known for kind of launching this campaign to strike down these sanctions implemented by the Obama administration. She is at this meeting, and Rob Goldstone, the celebrity publicist who arranged all of it, 
according to the emails that were leaked, was not at the meeting, but he checked into Trump Tower on Facebook on that day. Wow. He, why? Uh, you know, he would often brag on his social media profiles about hanging out with Trump. At Miss Universe, he bragged about it. He bragged about getting dinner with Trump in Vegas. Um, he is a frequent social media user. So June 9th, we have this meeting. What happens next? So we didn't actually learn about this meeting until this week, but right after that, on July 24th, 2016, Donald Trump Jr. appeared on CNN. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jake. Good to be with you. It was a day before the Democratic National Convention, and Jake Tapper asked Donald Trump Jr. about this suggestion that Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, made. I asked him about the DNC leak, and he suggested uh, that experts are saying that Russians were behind both the the leak, the, the, the hacking uh, of the DNC emails and their release. He seemed to be suggesting uh, that this is part of a plot to help Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. It was a very early idea at the time, but Trump Jr. responded. It's disgusting. It's so phony. I watched him bumble through the interview. I was able to hear it on audio a little bit. I mean, I can't think of bigger lies, but that exactly goes to show you what the DNC and what the Clinton camp will do. They will lie and do anything to win. Mind you, this is shortly after he met with a allegedly Kremlin-linked lawyer. Um, so as we all know, Donald Trump eventually goes on to become president on January 20th, 2017. He's sworn in. Together we will determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. Almost immediately, the Trump administration started running into these problems of these like bombshell reports in the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so one of these big stories is the news that Jared Kushner had to rescind his application for a security clearance because he omitted multiple meetings with Russians. And now we still don't know about this meeting that happened at Trump Tower at the time, but we do know that Kushner omitted multiple meetings from his security clearance application. So we've got Trump being inaugurated January 20th, and four months later, three months later, yeah. senior advisor, oops, I didn't mention all those foreign nationals I talked to. Right. And so that gets us to July 8th, 2017. This is where the story really starts to break. The New York Times breaks a story that doesn't have as much detail as we know today, but they break the story essentially that this meeting happened, you know. These two senior campaign officials and Donald Trump's son met with this Russian lawyer. And the first thing Donald Trump Jr. did, as we discussed earlier, was to lie and deflect. Um, he said, quote, it was a short introductory meeting. I asked Jared and Paul to stop by. He also said, we primarily discussed a program about the adoption of Russian children. You know, a lot of smart people will say, when Donald Trump Jr. says adoption program, he's really talking about those sanctions that so enraged Vladimir Putin. So in the logic there, obviously, is that Putin ended the adoption program as a result of the sanctions. It, it was retaliation for the sanctions. So, you know, discussing the adoption program is implicitly discussing the, the sanctions. Of course. So that's Donald Trump Jr.'s excuse. You know, it was just a meeting talking about adoption program. Nothing weird here. I take meetings all the time. So on the next day, July 9th, uh, the New York Times added some more information. This meeting, the pretense of the meeting, was for the Trump campaign to receive damaging information about Hillary Clinton. You know, it turns out it wasn't about adoption all along, though that may have been something that they discussed. But 
the pretense of the meeting was for dirt on Hillary Clinton. And they the Times was citing people who had seen these emails, apparently. Um, and Trump said of the apparent dirt on Clinton brought to them by this Russian lawyer, he said, quote, Her statements were vague, ambiguous, and made no sense. It quickly became clear that she had no meaningful information. But the fact that he met with foreign nationals to receive damaging information on an American candidate for president while his dad was also running for president seems like a pretty significant thing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, not necessarily illegal. People will try and get opposition research all the time, but, you know, certainly not from foreign nationals. But, you know, maybe that's just kind of the Trump way of operating. Mm -hmm. So then on the next day, July 10th, it gets even more juicy. The New York Times drops another bombshell that the pretext of this meeting was a Russian government effort to aid Trump's candidacy. You know, apparently this was explicit. Uh, It was kind of shocking. I think a lot of people were taken aback by how explicit the New York Times was in their writing that this was you know, a Russian effort to aid Trump's candidacy. You know, it would almost be beyond belief that you would write to someone like, hey, I'm bringing you some information, and by the way, it's part of a Russian effort to help your dad become president. And and then we also learned that the email that was sent was by this publicist of the pop star. He's back. Robert Goldstone. <laughs> now Robert Goldstone is saying, hey, Trump Jr., the Russian government is trying to help out your dad. How can I help you? Right. And so we don't really learn what's in those emails until the next day, July 11th. So the New York Times was about to publish the story. They gave him an 11 a.m. deadline to reply, a request for comment. Now, at 11 a.m., Donald Jr. himself publishes the entire email thread with Goldstone. And the emails as the Times reports, are shocking. In the email to Donald Trump Jr., Goldstone says, quote, This is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. And then in reply, Donald Trump Jr. said, If that's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. So, Donald Trump Jr. was excited about this idea of a Russian government plot to give the campaign information that would damage Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump Jr. preempts the New York Times, who says, you know, we're going to publish these emails at 11. Right. Um, He preempts them by tweeting them himself. Right. Why on earth did he do that? So, I mean, it's kind of this general idea in Washington and in PR in general that If there's going to be bad news and you know it's coming out, he knew beforehand because the Times had reached out to him that you publish it yourself and you're the one that presents it, not your critic. And it also works so that when he published these emails, he included a statement, you know, just kind of downplaying the emails. And the White House has kind of praised Donald Trump Jr. for his, quote unquote, transparency Mm. in the whole issue by publishing the emails. So I guess what I wonder with all of this, after the president of the United States' son releasing emails that say that he is for and actively wants to help or at least participate in a foreign government effort to sway an American election, what are we supposed to do? Well, I think the real question is, 
it's about as close as it could physically get to the president. It's literally his son with his own name. But <laughs> how does it get bit. to Donald Trump, the president himself? Mm-hmm. Now, we know Donald Trump was in New York that day. He did a fundraiser in New York, and he was back at Trump Tower by the time of the meeting. We know the meeting was at 4 p.m. from the emails. So, you know, it's kind of beyond belief to think that his son, his son-in-law, his campaign manager could have a meeting in Trump Tower with this Russian lawyer and Trump wouldn't hear about it or wouldn't know about it. Um, Now, here's something that I've been thinking about is really interesting. Trump talks about this a lot, about how he doesn't use email. That's pretty good for him. He doesn't have this kind of thing, this tool that prosecutors love and use so often to prosecute crimes. That's kind of this like bulletproof evidence. Um, So, you know, Trump doesn't use email. He wasn't on this thread. It's where's the connection to Trump is the real question. Hmm. But I guess it's like what I wonder is like Republicans are in power in every facet of American government. What will it take for the Republican Party and the people who have the actual power to do anything in terms of holding people accountable? What will it take for them to actually have to act? You know, Jeff, I wish I knew. I wish I knew too. We'll be right back. The first music service to find mainstream success has now been around for 17 years, and it's never made any money. Things are coming to a head, and Adrian Jeffries is here with the story. Hey, Adrian. Hey, Jeff. So Pandora has been around for all of 17 years and hasn't been able to figure out a way to make money? That's right. So Pandora started in 2000. It was super early to the idea of streaming music online, and its model was internet radio. So you would set a station according to an artist you liked or a song you liked, and Pandora would play back for you songs that were similar to that artist or song that you put in. And the way Pandora did this was through something it called the Music Genome Project. The Music Genome Project is a very detailed catalog of tracks that have been described according to hundreds of traits by trained musicologists. So we actually spoke to one of them, Hannah Glass, who told us that it takes her about 12 to 15 minutes to listen to a song and describe it according to these traits that Pandora has laid out. Wow. So that seems a lot different than the way things work now, right? Right. Well, Spotify is really the big Goliath these days. And 
Apple Music and Google Music are up there too. And all of those services just use algorithms. This may be part of the reason why Pandora lagged behind is that it's stuck with this bespoke music genome project idea for so long that its catalog was only up to about 2 million songs. Spotify has like 30 million. One of the things I, I remember is that Pandora was purchased by SiriusXM, correct? So not exactly. SiriusXM reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, made an offer to buy Pandora outright. Sirius is also struggling in its own way and felt like it needed to get have more of a presence on the internet. Pandora was struggling with profitability. And so Sirius said, hey, we'll give you $15 per share for Pandora. And Tim Westergren, who was the CEO at the time and the founder, said, no, I think Pandora is worth $20 a share. And that deal fell through. After that, Pandora kept talking to investors and eventually came back to Sirius and Sirius put in an investment, a large cash investment, $480 million, which has given Pandora a little bit of money to play around with, maybe buy some other services and gain some users that way. But there was a lot of criticism because Pandora's stock earlier today when I looked at it was $8.89. So when you look at that, you're like, wow, $15 a share looks pretty good right now. So Westergren is out now. And uh, that is probably a big part of the reason why. So Pandora never really seemed to get off to a great start. I think they were having money problems pretty early on. Yes, the company had money problems almost immediately. It raised $2 million before it launched, and it was out of that money in under two years. Tim Westergren famously convinced employees to work for free for two years while he raised additional investment he got it. Pandora got to be pretty popular and successful in a lot of metrics. It was never making money. It had money problems from the very beginning. And uh, it's just kind of all coming to a head now. And the company had to do layoffs. In January, it laid off 7% of its staff. It sold off one part of its business, Ticketfly, which was an event service. And there's been a lot of turnover at the top. The chief marketing officer left, and uh, so did the company president. And those people have been replaced and then Westergren, of course, is now out as CEO, and he's off the board as well. And SiriusXM is going to be putting new people on the board and looking for a new CEO. It seems like it'll be quite difficult for Pandora to ever really become the streaming service that people might have thought it would become when they first launched. So at what point do they kind of just pack it up and say, you know, we tried our best and we have to just shut down? It's a good question. They have bought themselves some time because they got the cash from SiriusXM. They got the cash from selling Ticketfly. They also just launched a Spotify competitor, which is like an on-demand service where you can play certain artists, make a playlist instead of just having to listen to whatever the radio station generates for you. Some people said that was too little too late, but it could be that the product is good enough that they get people to turn away from the other services or they recruit new, new people. So I don't think it's totally over for them. And I personally still use Pandora Radio. I think it definitely is noticeable that they don't have a lot of songs. You'll hear the same stuff over and over. But besides that, I really like just being able to set it and let it go. And when something really cool comes on, be able to check it out and find out about a new band. And I do think that the other music streaming services are not quite as good at that discovery thing yet, although they could get there. Anyway, as I mentioned, Spotify is also having its own problems. Problems are kind of happening for everybody who isn't Google or Apple or Amazon and doesn't have like this already huge existing user base that they can tap into. And 
other sources of money that can help them stay alive while they uh, negotiate this crazy expensive world of licensing fees. So I think it's really up in the air. I would say I wouldn't count out Pandora, but it definitely seems like 17 years is a long time to go without making any profit. Wow. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you. That concludes The Dispatch. If you'd like to get in touch with us and tell us what you think of the show, you can find us on Twitter at Outline. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffy Haza. More stories tomorrow.